You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm actually taking our passage of the week and I'm stretching it a little further than what it covers uh, just because it, I think it all goes together. What happens is in this passage, Jesus gives a parable, but then right after that, he, gives, he, he totally changes the parable and gives a completely different scenario. And then at the end, he goes back to the original parable and tweaks it. So it's kind of confusing, but it really all goes together. And uh, so you'll see what we're going to do this morning is rather than just read the whole thing in one swipe, I want to work through it verse by verse um, and and just pause every now and again and make a few comments to help us make sense of what Jesus is doing. Otherwise, it can be a little bit disorienting if we just read the whole thing. So that's what we'll do. I want us to go ahead and read this passage just a couple verses at a time. I'll make a few comments. And then after we finish kind of making our way through the passage itself, then we'll pray and then I'll get into the meat of what I want to say. Sounds good? Great. Well, it doesn't matter because that's what I'm going to do. Um, (laughs) Verses 35 and 36 of Luke 12 is where we'll begin. Jesus says, Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Now, whenever you read any parable in the Gospels, we need to understand that the purpose of a parable is to capture and communicate typically one single point. And everything else about the parable, the characters, the setting, the circumstances of the parable, Everything else is merely a prop to serve the goal of making that point. So in other words, we got to be careful with parables that we don't read into it extra symbolism that's not really intended. So for example, um, the character of the master in this parable this morning is not meant to teach us here's what God is like. Because that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is actually about us and how we are to live. So that's a good little nugget, not just for today, but for any time we study a parable, is to ask what is the main point that's trying to be emphasized. Now in this one, we have the master who is a wealthy estate owner. And he's been invited to to be a part of a wedding banquet or a wedding feast. And in that culture a wedding feast would last usually several days, maybe an entire week. And if you're traveling from a long ways away to go to be a part of one, you could be gone from your household for a long period of time, maybe like two or three, four weeks even. And so here's a guy who owns this wealthy estate. He's going to go be a part of this wedding feast, but there's really no definition in terms of when he's going to return. So he puts the household servants... Uh, in charge of the house, to take care of the responsibilities of the house. And he tells them, um, stay dressed and keep your lamps lit, Uh, which is just a way of saying, just be alert and be aware because my return is indefinite. You don't know when I'm going to come back. 
And so just always be ready, even if it's in the middle of the night, so that you can uh, notice that the master has returned and open the door for him when he does. Look at verses 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. That's quite a role reversal. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves or servants. It's doulos in the Greek means the same thing. Um, so I just want you to notice that it's good news for those servants who are doing their jobs, taking care of their responsibilities. It's good news that the master's returning. In fact, the master's going to be so pleased that he's actually going to assume the position of a servant and serve them. Now watch what happens in these next two verses. Because this is where Jesus, without warning, completely changes the parable and gives an entirely different scenario. But he does it in order to intensify his point. So let's look at verses 39 and 40. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So now, rather than servants waiting on their master to return, now we have a situation where a homeowner is about to have his house intruded upon by a thief. And just as the servants don't know when their master's going to return, the homeowner doesn't know when the thief's going to approach. So Jesus is using these two images to communicate and intensify a single point, And that is, you don't know when I'm going to come back, Jesus is saying. I'm going to return, but it's going to come unexpectedly. So always be ready. It could happen at any point. Verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? In other words, is this just, like, are you giving this just for your inner circle? Uh, you know, is this just for us 12, or are you giving this to the entire crowd? And Jesus is going to answer that by going back to the original parable, but he's going to tweak it a little bit. So let's look at verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their allowance of food at the proper time. Now, what you need to know is that in the ancient world, the wealthiest estates, they wouldn't just have a handful of servants, there would be a whole staff, a whole hierarchy of servants. And for those servants who are doing their jobs and, and they're loyal and they're faithful, they can be promoted in rank. And the highest rank of all within the household hierarchy of servants was that of a manager. And the manager's job was to oversee the rest of the servants and to do so representing the master's heart and character to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing and making sure that all of the servants are being properly cared for, they're being fed and all of those types of things. Verse 44, 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. So again, notice it's good news when the master returns for the one who's doing their job. Verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming 
And if he begins to beat the other servants, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. So here we have a a manager who's forgotten that he's a servant. And he's starting to act like a master. And he's doing it in a way that doesn't reflect the heart of the master. He's, He's using his position to try to make all of the other servants wait upon him and serve him. And when they don't get along with the program, he has them beaten. Furthermore, he has access to the wine cellar and apparently he's making good use of that. So here's an individual who is using their privileged position in a very selfish, irresponsible way and treating all of the other servants abusively. So let's look at what happens to this person. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now this phrase, cut him in pieces, is an expression. It's an idiom. And it just simply refers to severe punishment. It's kind of like when when children are bickering with one another and they say, uh, you know, when mom comes home, she's going to kill you, you know? Not meant to be taken literally, it's, you're just saying you're going to be in big trouble. That's the meaning of this expression. There's severe punishment coming. But it's not meant to be taken literally, and I think that's clear in the phrase that comes after. And put him with the unfaithful. So apparently he's still intact. <laughs> and that becomes even more clear in these last two verses of the passage. So let's look at these last two verses, and then we're going to pause and pray. Verse 47. That servant who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. Well, you know, if you're cut in pieces, what what does that matter? Um, And then verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. Let's pause and pray, and then we're going to get into the heart of what I want to say today. Now, Father, we're pausing because we want to be attentive to your voice. We recognize that your presence is in this room, and you're inviting us to hear from you, to learn from you. And I pray, God, that through this flawed preacher, Lord, that your voice somehow, in some way, would be heard, that we would receive whatever it is you intend for us to receive as individuals and as a church. Speak to the core of our being, and may your word take root and sprout and bear fruit for your kingdom through the rest of our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done, in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about the return of Christ. In the early to mid-1970s, within the evangelical world, there emerged this mass fascination with the return of Christ. And people became obsessed with end-times speculation. It was all over the place. It actually, for some, was a witnessing tool. The idea is you would go to some unsuspecting stranger and say, uh, are you ready? And of course, they would say, ready for what? And then you would go, uh, oh, you don't know? And then that's when you would pull out your rapture chart, 
show him the tribulation, mark of the beast, and all of this type of thing. It was um, in times hysteria, the year 1972, that was the year of the first big uh, Christian horror flick. It was actually horrific in a lot of ways, not the least of which was the acting. Um, but it was this movie, how many of you have heard of it? The Thief in the Night. Anybody remember Thief in the Night? Raise your hand proudly. All right. About half of you. I was 12 years old when a leader in our church decided it'd be a great idea to show Thief in the Night to all of the middle schoolers and scarred us for the rest of our lives. But you remember, you remember the song, life is full of guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. Sing it with me. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And then the Antichrist is going to get you and you're going to get the mark of the beast and go to hell. And I guess they figured, you know, we're going to scare everybody into the kingdom that way. But it was, it was, um, it was just part of the air we were breathing. You know, I wasn't quite around yet in the 70s, but it was, it was something that would become part of my life because it extended beyond that. But people back then, man, they, I'm telling you, they had the book of Revelation figured out. You know, I mean, they knew. Henry Kissinger's the Antichrist. I mean, it was obvious. Um, <laughs> the 10 nations that were part of the European League of Nations at the time, that's the 10-headed beast in the book of Revelation. And then when barcodes came out, in the 1970s, that was a big deal, man. Everybody knows, on the mark of the beast, it's right around the corner. I was born in 1981, and it was part of my childhood. It, 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 it was a huge part of my, my upbringing. I can remember that, um, just that, for me, fear that accompanied me throughout the 80s into the 90s. This end times hysteria continued into the 2000s all the way up until the present day. Now it's taken different forms and encompassed different ideas and weaved in different events, but it seems to have always been part of uh, the evangelical world that we live in. And when I look back, I can remember particular moments in evangelical history when it seemed to reach a fever pitch, like in the late 80s. I can remember this book that came out. I was a little boy, but I remember this book. How many of you remember this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Came Back is Going to Come Back in 1988? How many of y'all remember that? We chuckle about it today, but I'm telling you, that book swept through the evangelical world. Hundreds of thousands of church-going Christians bought that book. Man, Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, how many of you know Jesus didn't come back in 1988? What do you think the author of that book did? I wish I was joking. Very next year, he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. And he didn't sell quite as many that time, but <laughs> bless God, he sold a bunch. And then, of course, there was Y2K. A lot of you remember the hysteria, the panic of Y2K. People panicking, man. Planes are going to fall out of the sky. The banks are going to shut down. It's going to be the end of American civilization as we know it. And you had church-going Christians buying guns, burying gold in the backyard, stockpiling green beans. Ain't nobody going to touch my green beans. <laughs> and then there was, you know, the event in 2011 when uh, some type of talk show host out here in California, um, Harold Camping, 
announced that he announced to the world that he had figured out that Jesus is going to return May 21st, 2011, and they spent all this money on billboards all over the nation. I can remember seeing them in South Louisiana. Are you ready? May 21st, 2011. And then May 21st comes and goes and, and nothing happens. He comes right out and says, I'm sorry, I got my arithmetic wrong. I was six months off. It's going to happen October 21st. And then October 21st comes and goes and nothing happens and, and we never hear from him again. But you know, this type of thing, I, these are a few extreme examples, but this type of fascination with end time speculation, trying to read current events into the book of Revelation and beyond. Um, it's been such a fixation for so many people. And uh, there's, there's so many pastors and preachers and authors who have made a cottage industry out of end time speculation. They have proclaimed themselves to be experts on end times prophecy. They put on conferences and they write books about in time speculation, and they can tell you exactly how the book of Revelation is going to unfold in our lifetime. And then 10, 20, 30 years later, when it doesn't, it, it, when it doesn't play out the way they imagine it, there's no accountability. They just revise their predictions and write another book, and people just eat it up. It's a fixation for so many. And let me just say this. Before I go further, I want to preface everything I'm going to tell you with this. I believe, Ryan Post believes that Jesus is going to return and it can happen at any moment. Did you hear me say that? Will you turn to your neighbor and say, that guy believes Jesus can return at any moment? All right. I want to be crystal clear on that. All right. Because here's what I want to tell you today. There came a point early in my ministry when I just decided for myself that that kind of end times obsession and fascination and speculation is really wrong-headed and misguided. And I never go there. I have never preached a sermon. I will never preach a sermon where I'm up here speculating on the nature of the mark of the beast and the identity of the Antichrist. And I'm here telling you how the revelations unfolding within our current Lives. I, I just never do that, and I've had people get frustrated with me over the years. Ryan, tell us how COVID-19 fits in the book of Revelation. Tell us how Revelation is playing out right in front of our eyes. And they get frustrated because I don't participate in that kind of speculation about the end times. And there are reasons for that, and I'm going to tell you what they are. Because over the years, as I've read, as I've studied, as, a, as I've gotten something of an education on this, one of the, the things that I've learned is that ever since the beginning of Christianity, when Jesus came the first time, Christians, did you know Christians have been predicting that the end of the world would happen within their lifetimes in every generation since? And here's the deal. If you get on the inside of what they were thinking and you kind of enter into their viewpoint and you look through their lens at the context that they were dealing with, you can see why they would think that way. I mean, you could take this verse, attach it to this verse and this passage, and you can understand why they would be so persuaded that it would happen within their lifetime. And yet here we are 2,000 years into this, and so far they've all been wrong. As I've read and, and studied and learned about this particular topic, 
It was also surprising to me when I learned that actually throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, the book of Revelation, as well as the broader framework of how we understand the end times, Christians have had a variety of viewpoints and frameworks and ways to interpret these kinds of things. That wasn't explained to me when I was growing up in church. Now, I'm grateful for my upbringing. I am so glad that I was raised in church and that I was given that kind of background. But like anyone's background, it wasn't perfect, and we shouldn't expect that it would be. And one of the things I remember when I was a boy and a teenager growing up in my church is I was given one particular framework for the end times. And I was taught this framework. It's the most popular one out there. But I was taught this framework as if it's absolute rock-solid fact. This is what Christians believe, Ryan. That here's how it's all going to unfold. It's going to start with this event when all the Christians get zapped out. And then then there's going to be this many years. And then the Antichrist is going to make a treaty. Then there's going to be another span of years. Another big event. Then another big long event. Then two events at the end of this and this is the framework, Ryan. It's, it's rigid, it's tight, it's inflexible, and you should believe this with just as much confidence as you believe in the resurrection of Christ. And it's just as important. And that's the way I was taught. So you can imagine my surprise when I was in my early 20s and I discovered that this end times framework that I was given wasn't actually developed until the middle of the 1800s. Now, that's not to say whether it's right or wrong, but it should give you pause. It gave me pause to realize that up until the middle of the 1800s, no Christian anywhere articulated that particular framework. I didn't know that. I wish I would have known that even if I still believed it. It would have helped me to know that actually Christians have believed a wide variety of things when it comes to these things. As I read more, as I learned a little bit more, I found that Most, the absolute vast majority of scholars today classify the book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature. Now, stick with me for a moment. I'm going to teach you something that might be useful to you. Apocalyptic literature is a particular genre of literature that was very popular beginning 200 years before the coming of Christ till about 200 years after. So within that 400-year span of time, There was a lot of apocalyptic literature coming out of that part of the world. And one of the features of apocalyptic literature is that the authors would use these fantastic images, these huge, crazy metaphors that were never meant to be taken literally, but they represented real truths. So, for example, when the Bible, when Revelation talks about the sun turning black, and the moon turning to blood, and the stars in the sky falling to the earth like figs. These were standard apocalyptic images that were used. We even see some of these show up in the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. But everyone back then would have understood you don't take these things literally. They are images that are meant to communicate that the world as we know it is going to come to an end. The world, as you presently understand it, it's not always going to be this way. One of my favorite examples is in the middle of the book of Revelation. I think it's in chapter 17, where it talks about a woman who sits on seven hills. We've got to decide. Is that a metaphor? I hope it is. 
Because if it's not, if we're supposed to take that literally, either we're talking about seven tiny little hills or we're talking about a rather large woman, right? <laughs> well, it's obviously a metaphor, and in this case, it probably represents Rome because Rome is a city that sits on seven hills. But you understand, like, as I read, as I studied and really looked at this beyond the framework I was given, there came a point where I just, I just decided for myself that this whole business, maybe even literally business, of end-time speculation, it's, it's one massive distraction. People debating, you know, is, is the return of Christ going to happen before and during or after the tribulation? And is the tribulation going to be three and a half years, seven years, or 14 years? Because those are your three options, folks. And I'm, you talk to some Christians, if you have the wrong view of the tribulation, they're like, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. Is the tribulation going to happen before or after the millennial reign? Is the millennial reign literally 1,000 years or is it figurative? Uh, and then who, after all, is the Antichrist? There came a point in my life, I just asked myself the question, what possible difference can any of this make for right now? Honestly, it has about as much relevance as me sitting down trying to figure out how I'm going to die one day. Is it going to be a car crash or is it going to be cancer? And if it's cancer, is it going to be in my lungs or in my kidneys? And if it's in my lungs, um, you know, what kind of treatment am I going to get? And, you know, deal with that when it comes. Take care of it when it gets here. But right now, Ryan Post, live in this moment. Because this is the moment you've got right here and right now. It's the only moment you've got. It's a little bit like these servants in this household in Jesus' parable. They've been given responsibilities. They've been given chores to take care of. And yet they're spending their whole time looking out the window, staring, speculating about when and how the master's going to return. If you're spending your whole time staring out the window, speculating on when and how the master's going to return, what are you not doing? The responsibilities you've been given to do. The whole point of the parable is to teach us that it's going to come unexpectedly. You're not going to know when and how it's going to happen. That's about all you need to know, so be faithful. If Jesus is teaching us that it's going to be unexpected, you don't know when and how he's going to return, let's take him at his word and get on with the work that he's given us to do. Amen? That's my take. That is my end times framework in its entirety. If you want to know what I think about the end times, that's it. That's all I care to know. Some people, they, they, got it. they, they know more about the book of Revelation than God does. So let's break down this passage. I want to give you real quickly three main points out of this passage, and none of them have to do with end-time speculation. Number one, you might even write these down. Number one, the master's coming back. Amen. Jesus is returning. It's going to happen suddenly. We don't know when. It could happen today. Or it could happen a thousand years from now. Or it might even happen 10,000 years from now. But the point is not to sit around and try to decode and figure out when it's going to happen. Our call is to be faithful. So there's going to come a time when God is going to bring this present era of human history to a close. And God is going to make everything right and usher in a whole new era where he's going to renew all of creation, make everything right, and that era is going to go on for all of eternity. 
But the world as we know it right now will not always be this way. This era is going to come to a close. That tells us a couple things. That number one, we shouldn't get too attached to the world as we know it. And we, couldn't get, we shouldn't get too attached to our lives right now as we presently know them. It also tells us that we shouldn't get too bent out of shape over what's happening around the world, what certain world leaders are doing or governments or militaries are doing around the world or what technology is being developed. I think we ought to care about these things. I think we ought to have concern about those things. I'm not saying we abstain and, and just become these, these uh, disassociated pietists at all. We, we care about these things, but we don't become anxious and we don't get bent out of shape over these things because God's the one who determines when this era of human history is going to come to a close. In other words, I don't think Jesus is in heaven panicking, saying, oh my goodness, they're going to they're gonna blow up the world before I have a chance to return. I don't think he sweats it. God is the sovereign Lord of history. This thing's not going to come to an end until he wants it to come to an end. So that doesn't mean we, we don't care about the things of the world, but we just don't worry about them. Point number two, the master's returning. Therefore, number two, we are called to be faithful servants of God's house. We are entrusted with God's house and we are to be about his business. Now, when I was growing up, according to the framework I was given, I was taught that actually the whole goal is we're going to escape the house. Jesus is going to come back and zap us out of here, and the house is going to be trashed. It's going to be destroyed. Which, if that's the case, then why do we care about the house? You know, it's like, in other words, why should we care about problems like global poverty and homelessness? Why, why should Christians care about matters of injustice and violence and things like the environment? Like, what, what difference does it make? This whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. So what's the point, you know? We're just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. But here's the thing, folks. This is his house. And as I understand scripture, he cares about his house. Now when he comes back, he's going to rejuvenate the house. He's going to completely gut it and renovate the house. And there's going to be an extreme makeover when he comes back. But he cares about his house right here and right now. And you and I, this goes back to the beginning of the creation story. You and I have been given dominion. We are to be faithful stewards over the house he has given us. His good creation and everything that it entails. Now it's probably true that we're not going to solve the problem of global poverty until Jesus comes back. That's always going to be around but we're still called to manifest God's heart for the poor. Why? Because this is his house, and the poor people live in his house, and he wants the poor people taken care of in his house, and we've been entrusted with responsibility to that end. And it's true that we're probably not going to completely think our way out of racism until Jesus returns. We're not going to fully eradicate all forms of racism until Jesus comes back. That's probably always going to be part of our human story. But we don't sit on our hands we're called to manifest God's heart for a one new humanity. And within our own lives, purge that out of us and tear down those walls that divide us. Why? Because this is his house. And he doesn't want racism going on in his house. Amen? And it's probably true that we're not going to get rid of violence until Jesus returns. The world's always going to be a violent world. But we're still called to manifest God's peaceful character and purge violence out of our own hearts and lives and commit ourselves to becoming peacemakers. Why? Because this is his house. 
And he doesn't like violence happening in his house. And it's also true that the environment's probably always going to be messed up until Jesus comes back. We're probably not going to completely think our way out of that. But we're called to manifest God's heart towards his good creation. The creation he calls good. Why? Because it's his house. And this is his air. His trees. His grass. And you and I are called to take care of his house and to be good stewards in whatever way we decide to do that. So this idea that we just believe in Jesus and wait until he comes back, I think it's the wrong mindset. The master's coming back. He's going to do an extreme makeover when he does. But we're called to lay the groundwork for that right now. We're called to take care of the house and carry out the jobs he's given us. And that leads to my third and last point. Nathaniel, would you come and just begin to play softly? Just try to create a nice emotional moment for me. Um, Number three is, according to this passage, we will be rewarded or punished based on our faithfulness to our responsibilities. Just show you, this is something that's not only in this passage, it's all over the New Testament. In Romans 14, verses 10 and 11, look at this passage. Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all, everybody say all. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Paul says, for all, everybody say all. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive due recompense for the actions done in the body, whether good or evil, And then one more, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, he gives this image of you and I building a house. And he says the foundation is Jesus Christ, but the question is what materials are we going to use to build this house? In other words, what kind of life are we going to build? He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he says the work of each builder will become visible for the day, the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So, you know, when a a fire sets a house ablaze, you know, Paul's saying if that house is built with gold and silver and precious stones, it's going to survive. In fact, fire purifies that stuff, and the builder's going to receive a reward. But if you've built your house out of wood, hay, and straw, it's going to be consumed, and the builder's going to suffer loss. So what kind of lives are we going to build? And in this passage, Jesus is saying, the time to get it is now. Look at me, folks. Now is the time to become a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And now is the time to get serious about carrying out the responsibilities he's given us in this earth. This is the hour to submit completely to Jesus Christ because you're not guaranteed the future. You don't know when Jesus is going to come back. You don't know when you're going to die. The future is not guaranteed. So now is the time to yield to the Spirit. Thank you for listening to today's message. 
To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. Thank you.